Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to the Legal One podcast. My name is David Nash. I'm the director of the Legal One program. Today's episode is part of a 12-part series highlighting major U.S. and New Jersey Supreme Court decisions, why they're relevant today, and how the law has evolved since that decision. Today, we're discussing key legal considerations related to addressing student bullying in light of the New Jersey Supreme Court decision in L.W. versus Toms River. L.W. is a landmark decision on the protections available to students who are bullied due to any characteristic that's protected under the New Jersey law against discrimination. Today I have with me Michael Kalber. Mike is the Legal One Coordinator of Online Course Development. Mike, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for the opportunity to be here today, David. And I'm very happy to have with me Rosa Chera. Rose is the Federal Legislative Chair and the immediate past president of the New Jersey State PTA. Thank you, Rose, for being here as well. Thank you, Dave, and thank you for this opportunity to have the parent voice for this very important topic. So let's go back to the mid-1990s and review the facts of the L.W. versus Tom's River case. In 1993, L.W. was a student in the fourth grade, elementary school student, and he started to get comments from some of his classmates regarding his perceived sexual orientation. So this is the fourth grade that he's getting these comments, and he was confused. He wasn't quite sure what they meant. He wasn't quite sure what to do about it. He did tell his parents what was happening. The parents did not report any of these incidents in fourth grade to the school district. They tried to handle it with L.W. The incidents continued. And in fifth grade, L.W. and his parents did report to the school district that he was being targeted and comments were being made about him because of his perceived sexual orientation. Unfortunately, the behavior continued. The number of incidents increased. They started to happen virtually every day in the fifth and sixth grade. And there were many different students involved who were targeting LW and making these comments. In seventh grade, LW moved to the middle school in the school district. And there were a number of incidents that happened in the first part of the school year between September and December. LW and his parents tried to handle those on their own without reporting them to the school district. But the incidents continued and became more serious. In January, there were a series of very serious incidents that continued into March. So here we had incidents involving dozens of students, many of them becoming very physical in nature with students in various ways targeting and assaulting LW, including one student hitting LW with a chain. 
there was another incident where LW was essentially groped in front of other students in a cafeteria. So really horrifying set of incidents that happened between January and March of that year. Those were reported to the school district and the district did attempt to address those issues as they were happening. In eighth grade, the situation appeared to improve. LW was still occasionally targeted based on the reports that were made verbally. We did not see physical incidents happening in eighth grade. So by all accounts, it was a better year for LW. Now LW was moving on to the high school. And in ninth grade, there were incidents that started to occur as well. And those incidents started to happen very quickly at the start of the school year. So LW was trying to avoid students who were targeting him. So at one point early in the school year, he decided that rather than going on the school bus, he would simply walk home from school, trying to avoid being targeted by other students. While walking home from school, a group of students in a car still targeted him and physically assaulted him while walking home. There was another incident when LW decided to walk to lunch one day, which you know every student in the high school was permitted to do. LW did that and he was physically targeted and assaulted by another student on that day. So his parents were obviously incredibly upset and concerned. We had this series of incidents that had started in fourth grade, were reported starting in fifth grade, and continued and escalated with a brief respite in eighth grade, but then continuing and getting even worse at the high school level. So the parents decided that they didn't think the school district could protect LW. They disenrolled LW from the school district, unilaterally placed him into a performing arts high school in ninth grade, and then moved him over to a county vocational school district the following year. The parents then brought litigation against the school district. So let's think about the district's response to what was going on during these incidents. The district did have a code of student conduct and had a student handbook that was distributed to all students and parents that talked about how the district did not tolerate bullying. Now, the handbook did not specifically mention the fact that we should not be targeting students based on their sexual orientation. So that was not mentioned at all in the handbook. The district had a progressive discipline policy And within that policy for a first incident, generally speaking, students were counseled and there was an attempt to try to get the student to understand why their actions were inappropriate and the harm they were causing. For a second incident, generally the student had disciplinary points that were imposed. And after a certain number of disciplinary points, the student was advised that he or she could face detention or even suspension. For a third incident, generally we were up to the point where the student would be suspended. The court in this case did note that the district did have some stronger responses in place for other types of student misbehavior. So for example, a student who was more than one minute late for class would face an automatic detention for a single incident where they were a minute late for class. So we had this progressive discipline policy that was in place for the school district. There were concerns in the district's response about how well they were sharing information as LW moved up from elementary school to middle school to high school. And there was evidence introduced that the middle school officials were not fully aware of what happened in the elementary school. And the high school officials were not aware of all of the issues that had occurred in middle school regarding LW. As one example, there was a seventh grade teacher who spoke with LW's parents, being concerned that LW's academic performance was dropping and LW's behavior was getting worse. 
And when the parents explained that they thought this had something to do with LW being targeted and bullied relentlessly, the teacher had no idea that was happening and didn't have any information about what was going on. And at another point, when LW sought counseling from a school counselor in the middle school, the student was told to toughen up and turn the other cheek in regard to the bullying behavior that was happening. And the parents, when they found out about that, obviously were very upset and complained about that counseling. So we had some very serious issues, and the school district was now facing litigation that the parents had brought, alleging that the school district failed in their legal duty to protect LW from discrimination based on perceived sexual orientation. And the claim was brought under the New Jersey Law Against Discrimination, a comprehensive anti-discrimination law that New Jersey had put into place. So one of the legal issues in dispute was whether or not there was a private right of action for student-on-student harassment under the New Jersey Law Against Discrimination. Did the law cover this issue, or was there no right for a parent to claim that their child had been the victim of discrimination under this state law? And if the law covered this issue, what was the legal standard that would be applied in determining whether or not the school district was actually liable, whether they had failed to meet their legal obligation? The school district attempted to argue that the New Jersey law against discrimination did not apply to student-on-student harassment. They argued that the law was really intended for discrimination against the adults, the staff members in that building, not intended to protect students. They also argued that if the law did apply, that the standard that should be applied is deliberate indifference and that the parents would have to prove that the district was deliberately indifferent to what was happening and took no action whatsoever to try to stop the bullying. And the school district argued they did make an attempt to deal with the behavior. The alternative argument was that the standard that should be applied is the same one that we apply to adult harassment under the New Jersey Law Against Discrimination. So the law against discrimination that was in dispute here was enacted back in 1945. It's one of the strongest anti-discrimination laws in the nation. At the time of the incidents in question in the 1990s, it included protection from discrimination in any place of public accommodation, which included public schools based on race, creed, color, national origin, ancestry, age, marital status, affectional or sexual orientation, and a number of other specific characteristics. So the law specifically covered discrimination based on actual or perceived sexual orientation. It should be noted that at the time of the incidents in question here, the law didn't yet protect students based on gender identity or expression. But in 2007, the law was revised, and now New Jersey also protects anyone from discrimination based on gender identity or gender expression. So we had this legal dispute and a question about whether there was any district liability at all. Ultimately, the New Jersey Supreme Court held that, yes, the law against discrimination was intended to protect not only the adults in the workplace, including a school setting, it was also intended to protect students. The court did say that it was not going to apply a strict liability standard for an isolated incident. Unfortunately, the court recognized that sometimes students do misbehave, sometimes students do cause harm to others. So the court said that we have to meet specific standards before a school district would be held liable under the law against discrimination. First, the student would have to prove that the behavior would not have occurred but for the student's protected class. In this case, the student's perceived sexual orientation. The student would also have to prove that a reasonable student of the same age and maturity level 
and that protected characteristic would consider the behavior so severe or pervasive that it created an intimidating, hostile, or offensive school environment. And the student would have to prove that the school district failed to take actions that were reasonably calculated to stop the conduct, to end the harassment. So that was the standard that the court laid out. The court did say that a school district may be found liable under the law against discrimination for student-on-student -student sexual harassment that creates a hostile educational environment when the school district knew or when the district should have known of the harassment and failed to take actions reasonably calculated to end that harassment. And that standard, the court said, conforms with the intent of the law against discrimination and that intent is very broad to try to eradicate the cancer of discrimination from all places of public accommodation, including our public schools. So this was a landmark ruling. And within that ruling, the court did get very specific at saying the factors that would be considered in assessing whether or not a school district's response was reasonable. The court said that we should be looking at the ages, the developmental levels, the maturity level of the students. The court stressed that school culture and atmosphere and the school climate are critical. And the school district has to show that they're addressing those larger school climate and culture issues. The court said you should look at how frequent or rare the incidents are, the duration of the incidents, how severe they are, whether violence was involved, the history of harassment within the district, the school and among individual and students, which means information sharing is critical as students move from one school to another within a district that you have to assess the effectiveness of the response, which means that if your current code of conduct is not effectively stopping the behavior, we need to do something different. We can't simply keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. And there needs to be some consideration of alternative responses if the things that you're trying aren't working, if your current discipline policies are not stopping the behavior. And certainly we need to show that there's an urgency to these issues and that the district is acting swiftly if they do become aware of incidents. So we have this landmark decision and it really is very important for all school officials and parents and students to understand this important case. There are certain essential due process rights that students have as well that we wanna make sure are understood if we have a student who is ever targeted for bullying. So under a famous Supreme Court decision, Gosby Lopez, students have a right, of course, if they're accused of bullying, to know exactly what they're accused of, and they have a right to give their side of the story. Under New Jersey law, under our Anti-Bullying Bill of Rights, parents and students have very specific due process rights that come into play as well. For harassment, intimidation, or bullying, parents have a right to be notified of the incident, whether their child was the alleged victim or aggressor, they have a right to be notified of the outcome of the investigation within five days of the Board of Education being informed. They have a right to a hearing before the Board of Education if they disagree with the outcome or conclusions that were reached. And if they disagree with the Board of Education, they have a right to appeal that decision to the Commissioner of Education. If the claim involves a protected class, like we saw in the LW case where the student was targeted because of perceived sexual orientation, there are additional rights that kick in as well. So the parents would have a right to pursue potential claims under the New Jersey law against discrimination and other state and federal anti-discrimination law and could pursue those claims in state and federal court. For students with disabilities, there are extensive additional protections and rights that are afforded, whether those students are potentially the victims or the alleged aggressor in a bullying incident. 
And there's also additional rights that parents have to access student records under the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act and additional state law provisions regarding the rights of parents to access student records. So we have these critical due process rights that all parents and students and school staff need to understand. And Mike, this decision came down in 2007, not so long ago, but if you think about what's happened in New Jersey since 2007, in some ways it feels like an eternity. So there have been a lot of developments since that time, including the passage of New Jersey's Anti-Bullying Bill of Rights in 2011. So do you wanna just comment briefly on the extensive set of new processes and structures that were put in place because of the Anti-Bullying Bill of Rights? First of all, it's important for everybody to know that nationally, New Jersey's Anti-Bullying Bill of Rights Act is viewed as the gold standard in addressing bullying in the schools. It is the premier piece of legislation. And what it does is, among other things, it creates an enhanced reporting requirement, as you had mentioned earlier. Those who witness or hear have reliable information about an incident of HIV, if you're a school employee or a contracted service provider, like cafeteria workers or custodians, you have an obligation to report that to the principal on the same day and follow up in writing within two days. Board of Ed members, students, volunteers, such as parents who have witnessed or have reliable information about an act of HIV will report that to the appropriate school official. For board members, it's generally the superintendent, but for others, generally the, the principal in most circumstances. Sometimes safe schools resource officer or someone along those lines might be involved as well, but basically an obligation to report. Once it's reported and it gets to the principal, there's a relatively quick and detailed investigation process. And one of the relatively new pieces of the law in terms of administrative code is that there is an ability in school districts, if the district so chooses and puts it in board policy, to allow the principal to pre-screen an incident that's reported and make a determination with the anti-bullying specialist as to whether or not on its face that would constitute an act of HIV. If the answer is no, that matter goes directly to the Board of Education on appeal and does not get fully investigated. If the district doesn't have that policy, then that option is not available. And the principal would immediately, within one school day of the report, start the investigation and get it to the anti-bullying specialist, who will then investigate and within 10 school days come up with a report that then goes to the superintendent within two school days of completion. Then from the superintendent who may make determinations regarding intervention services or training programs or discipline, we'll then send that to the Board of Ed, no later than the board meeting following the completion of each investigation. So when the investigation is done, the board gets it at the next board meeting, along with recommendations in terms of actions to be taken. David already mentioned about the parents and guardians getting notification within five school days of that report and they get an opportunity to know the nature of the investigation, whether the district found evidence of HIV and whether discipline was imposed. And the parent and guardian then has a right to request a hearing before the board within 60 calendar days. And they get that hearing within 10 calendar days of the request. In every situation, the board has to issue a written decision to affirm, reject, or modify the superintendent's decision. And that's going to occur at the board meeting following the superintendent's report. So what does that all mean? It means a whole process takes place within two board meeting times, basically two months generally, because boards generally meet once a month, with the exception of the parent guardian appeal. But the determination gets made within that two-month period. Then it can be appealed to the commissioner, 
or as we stated earlier, if it's a law against discrimination issue, it can go with the Division of Civil Rights. And if it's a special education student and it may have an impact on their program, there could be a due process appeal. So there could have three parallel tracks going at the same time. But with all that involved, the enhanced role, the enhanced investigation, the more timely investigation, the fact that everything gets looked at puts New Jersey in a position where it is the preeminent anti-bullying legislative state in the entire nation. And of course, New Jersey has this extensive structure in place, and it's one of those laws that takes a great deal of time to know all the nuances. So our podcast today is giving you some key overview information. We do provide you with a link with much more extensive information with all of the details about New Jersey law and the due process rights that are involved. So having reviewed the LW versus Tom Trevor case and having talked about some recent developments, I do want to turn to you, Rose, and talk about some of the key issues that we should consider when it comes to schools and parents working together. So, Rose, if a parent is notified by a school administrator that their child may have been the victim of bullying, what are some of the key questions that a parent is likely to ask? So I think it's important that that parent does set up a meeting with themselves, their child, and also a school administrator to make sure that their child's side of the story is told to what really happened. And then if there is indication that their child was an indicator, I think it's very important that that parent take the time to speak to their child honestly and just listen to what is being told to them by their child. Be clear uh, with their child of the seriousness of this matter and set and enforce clear and consistent rules and even fair consequences moving on because again of the seriousness of this matter. Work with your child to maybe taking them to a professional for some help and also build upon your child's strengths and their positive qualities throughout this. So the child does realize that yes, they may have made a mistake, but now it's time to move on from this. As a follow-up, how can schools and parents work together after an incident of HIV has occurred in order to support the victim? This can be very devastating in many cases for a student who's been targeted. So I think that collaboration between the parents and the school is so important, and also even in the community. It's important that they, as parents, there is a concern that is expressed and clear that they do want to help in this situation. Again, we talk about making sure that parents have at their PTA meetings or other parent group meetings some type of training and just have speakers coming in, have discussions about, you know, bullying does happen and what parents together can do to make sure that it doesn't happen. Also ask, you know, help from the school staff to cooperate with them, make sure that They are also providing uh, lessons or talking about it in the school, but also with their teachers. So again, it's that collaboration that everyone is discussing it. Because again, parent leaders definitely want to make a difference, especially when it does come to situations of bullying in their school. And in a similar vein, you might have some underlying causes for why a student is misbehaving. A parent might have some more information about traumatic issues that a student has experienced in their personal life that could be influencing the student's behavior in school. So I would imagine it would be very important for the parents to share that sort of information as well that could explain why a student might have been misbehaving. 
Absolutely. It's important, again, to always be upfront and clear when there is a situation in the school and together, hopefully it's something that we can put an end to. I know one of the major concerns that parents will understandably have is the impact that a bullying incident might have on that student's future. So a student who was guilty of an act of harassment, intimidation, or bullying, many parents will ask, how will this impact my child's future, including potential college applications? So Rose, I imagine this is a concern that you have heard from some parents. Child might have engaged in bullying in fourth grade, and we're worried about the long-term impact that it might have. Yes, this too is very important. That education piece, parents are concerned that something happened in the fourth grade, fifth grade, and it's going to carry on. But without written consent of a parent or either the eligible student, their records cannot be shared with the college. So they should not be concerned about that. That's something that did happen in the younger years will not follow through with them. And it's uh, very important to know that. And the fact is that colleges will never get information about elementary or middle school incidents unless the student or parent volunteered that information to the college. And even at the high school level, a parent could say that we're not giving permission to share that information. So in addition to working together with the parent to address the concern over college applications, There are some very specific provisions that a school district could consider to actually revise the student's formal record. So Mike, do you want to talk a little bit about the options that would be available to a school district to assess the student record and potentially revise it? There is a provision in the New Jersey Administrative Code dealing with student records that would allow a parent to petition the chief school administrator or superintendent to have an item removed from the file if it is no longer deemed educationally relevant. We've been talking in this section about the fourth grade incident and now the students in high school and assuming they have a clean slate for the rest of that time, that fourth grade incident may no longer be educationally relevant. And it is a provision by which a parent can ask that it be removed from the student's file. So it's, it's one that's not as well known as perhaps it should be, and it isn't implemented quite as often as it could, but it does address the issue of that data still remaining in the file and following the student beyond a time when it would be educationally relevant. As one final question, Rose, any thoughts on how schools and parents can work together to promote a greater understanding of the many protections that are available under the New Jersey Anti-Bullying Bill of Rights? Family engagement in schools is so very important. In PTA, We are so committed to making sure that we reach out to parents to not just educate them, but also to engage them so that we can work together to support and improve the understandings of some of the laws that we've discussed today when it comes to harassment, intimidation, or bullying. We feel that the more parents know about what is going on in school, what their rights are, what their students' rights are, that the easier it will get when it comes to situations, unfortunate situations like this. We firmly believe that we cannot educate our children without reaching out to their parents first and setting that example with the parents. And then again, engaging parents with teachers and teachers with other agencies that can help to make sure that everyone is being educated when it comes to harassment, intimidation, or bullying in school. So with that, I want to thank you, Rose, for your wonderful partnership and for your great wisdom today. It's wonderful having New Jersey State PTA as a partner in our podcast. So thank you so much for all that you do. 
Thank you, Dave. And thank you to Legal One and New Jersey PSA for their great partnership and always allowing the parent voice to be at the table. And thank you, Mike, for your great insights and for all the great work you're doing with us at Legal One to help make sure everyone understands the Anti-Bullying Bill of Rights and the protections available for our students. Well, you're quite welcome, David, and thank you for the opportunity to be part of this program today. Thank you to all of our listeners. We encourage you to look at the Legal One website for information on the many programs that we do make available regarding issues of bullying and student safety and protection and legal requirements related to so many different issues in our schools. With that, we look forward to having you with us on future Legal One podcasts. Be safe and be well, everyone. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.